A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Lore of Us podcast, where the lore hounds your guides to a fungal apocalypse. I'm John. And I'm David. And this is our coverage of the HBO original series, The Last of Us. In this podcast, we'll be discussing our general thoughts about this episode before getting into our in-depth scene-by-scene breakdown of Season 1, Episode 5, Endure and Survive. Be sure to stick around at the end of the podcast for programming notes about us and our podcasting peers. One of our favorite things about podcasting is getting your feedback. And we love to hear fan theories, pickups on details, stuff that we might have missed. And we also just like to hear how people are enjoying the episode or the season overall. So you can send us feedback in two ways. You can email us at T-L-O-U, that's the last of us, T-L-O-U at thelorehounds.com, or you can leave us a voicemail and we'll play that on the next episode. If you go to our website, thelorehounds.com slash contact, scroll all the way to the bottom There's a little record feature there, and uh, you can leave us a voicemail. You can also get it to us by uh, ham radio by playing 80s music if you didn't (laughs) like the podcast, and 60s music if you did like the podcast. That would be awesome. I would love it if somebody did that. If you want to talk The Last of Us sooner with us, join us on our new Discord server, which you can join with the link in our show notes. A quick reminder about our Patreon. If you like what we're doing and you feel like you might want to support us directly, check us out at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. For as little as $3 a month, you get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, early access, cool things like Second Breakfast, which is a Patreon exclusive. So um, take a look. Of course, you can always get our ad-supported podcasts on our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, by searching for us on your podcast application of choice or by using the subscription tool at thelorehounds.com. Lastly, we'd ask that if you're enjoying the podcast, why don't you take a moment, head on to your Apple Podcast app if you use that, And give us a nice review, if you'd like, because it really helps us with the rankings, it helps us find more listeners, it helps us make more podcasts. So David, what'd you think about this episode? This was an hour long, it was a little bit longer than last episode, so we're about the middle of the the road on length for this season. Yeah, um, you you called out last episode that you didn't feel like episode four, like that was a beginning, a middle. And then we sort of have the middle to the end of this little two-episode arc here. So we definitely, I definitely feel like we're wrapped up with a Kansas City storyline. Um, I want to step back slightly on my specific thoughts to this episode and point out uh, an interview that I heard with 
Patrick Somerville. And some of the stuff that he says in that, I think, is going to come to play in this episode. And I'll point out some specific stuff when we get in the break by, breakdown when the, in the scene by scene. But uh, Patrick Somerville, if you don't know who he is, he was the showrunner for a show called um, Station Eleven, which is also a post-apocalyptic um, uh, storyline, very different from this. But a lot of people are drawing parallels. And Joe and Mallory over on uh, the Ringerverse had an interview, and it, like a really one-on-one. Well, I don't know it's like three friends talking. I mean, it's, it was a really good thing. They they know. Somerville um, reasonably well. And so they talk about the show from Patrick's point of view as a showrunner, as a writer, as somebody who has been intimately involved in building these kinds of shows, these very uh, character-driven shows. And one of the things that he points out, which I think is a bit obvious, is that the focus of this season of The Last of Us has been on people and human relationships, right? It's not about the zombies. It's not about what happened, the breakdown of society. It's about people and their relationships and in the face of crisis and of like horrible moral choices that you have to make. You know, and, and, and there has been some um, conversation in the, in the space on the internets about, uh, oh, like the show's pacing and they're spending too much time. And we have this whole thing with Frank and and Bill and like is that really part of the story? Did we really need that? Mm-hmm. And I think it, with this storyline in this episode, in episode five with with Henry and Sam, that by focusing so much on the human relationships, when things start to break bad, when things you know turn upside down, and you know either the consequences of actions come to fruition, or in the case of Bill and Frank, you know the the natural course of of life. Uh, uh, comes to a particular point, the emotional stakes that we as the audience are going to feel because we've done this character drama stuff, it's going to be intense and it's going to be powerful. And right. so I think that that's what the show is doing is it's, it's, it's front loading all of this human relationship stuff so that when horrible things like a bloater comes out of a hole, like it means something, right? It actually the the impact of that happening means something to us as you know viewers so i thought that was a a really interesting take and then there's something else that somerville talked about too which he was really taken with that um Druckmann and uh, mazen have done in this and i don't know it's kind of new to me i mean i'm just a armchair uh um tv and film aficionado right i love to talk about scene blocking and, you know, racking focus and whatever. Well, I don't know anything. I've never worked in the industry to that level. So, but it's fun, right? I'm like, I'm like, a, well, it's Super Bowl Sunday. It's like armchair quarterbacking a, uh, a game, right? I love to sort of pretend that I know something about these things. And this is kind of a new thing that I hadn't ever had pointed out to me before until Somerville said this, is that um, one of the things that Mason is doing in this is they are fronting uh, um, something in a storytelling way, right? In a visual storytelling way. So Jakarta, or in this episode, you know, the, the folks of Kansas City sort of overthrowing Fedra. And then later in the episode, someone will talk about that. And so rather than just giving us exposition and somebody talking about XYZ happening, the bombing, that's another uh, good thing, right? So they talk about, you know, in Jakarta bomb, 
and then they're walking through Boston, and there's a bomb crater. And um, so they, they show us, and then they tell us. And then when they tell us, that actually connects up with what we've seen. So in our brain, we were like, oh, cool, like we connect these two Lego blocks together, and it feels good that we have that kind of connection. And this show is doing this all over the place. And um, I'll point it out a couple of times when I noticed it in, in this. And it, I just think it's just really, the, the show is existing on this great level of storytelling, but then there also, there's this great level of like, this is a really nicely constructed piece of television. And it's really fun to see how they're doing the construction, I guess you could say. So. This episode does a lot of that again, and it just makes me very happy. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that the way that they're doing this sort of three-step Martin reveal that we've talked about in other podcasts sure. mm -hmm. is really interesting, right? They're they're showing you, like you said, and then they make it clear what happened. They explain to you what happened, so that even if you're casually watching, even if you're looking at your phone, you're going to understand what happened enough to tell the story. But it will be more meaningful if you watch it closely. Yes. I think that's cool. When it rewards someone who has an attention to detail, but it doesn't require you to like glue your eyes to the screen. Right. And I think that's actually kind of how the game is, too, because you can play the game straight through without ever exploring, but you will get different skill trees, different abilities if you go off and try to crack the safe in this corner, try to, mm -hmm. you know, just explore this other building that's just there and you don't have to go through it. So I think that that's sort of in line with the Last of Us universe. Interesting, uh, too, just sort of general reactions to the episode. There are definite pieces of this that felt very much like that could have been taken from the game, like um, yeah. with Joel, Overwatch, you know, uh, sort of uh, taking out threats as Ellie is trying to, you know, get to safety and that kind of stuff. That felt very much like it could have been taken directly from a game. That and sneaking past the sniper generally, those were hard parts of the game, actually. Was there any part of the tunnel uh, work? I'll get to that when we get there. There was okay. <laughs> a big Easter egg, a big right. Easter egg in the nice. note that had the picture. So oh. I'll, I'll talk about that when we get there. Okay, cool. Excellent. But yeah, the uh, the tunnel thing, they definitely go through the tunnel in the game and they get to the kids' room and it's actually much sadder in the game. Yeah. I can I talk bet. about that too. It's uh okay. there's a... Uh, you know what I'll just say it here. The in the room where they get to the children's room, you see a bunch of bodies and one bigger body. And uh, there's one note that says, you know, the infected are at the door, and then there's on the floor painted says they didn't suffer. Oh, gosh. Pretty dark, huh? Much darker yeah. than the show. Yeah, yeah, very, very. I think uh, I think if they had front, if they had done that to us on the show, then the end of this episode, I don't think it would have had the same kind of punch. It would have it would have blown the blown the emotional. Um, it would have vented the emotional buildup. I think or too early. Yeah, and I think that it's just a different medium thing because in the game that's like yeah. a couple hours in between. Okay. But here, you don't have all the survival stuff to get through, so it's really only like 20 minutes, right? Interesting. Yeah. Um, some other show reaction stuff. I really enjoyed uh, Melanie Linsky as Kathleen. And I, there is chatter on the internet, people like questioning her casting choice. And I say hogwash to that. I thought she was a brilliant choice. I think she's a great actor. 
And I really love the whole psychological drama that's playing for her, where, yeah, her brother was this big heroic guy, but she's the one who actually gets stuff done. And then that she's so traumatized by the death of her brother that, you know, she's out for revenge. And I've got some more to say about that because it's not as simple as I think revenge. No. But, you know, the whole, you know, the whole idea of hurt people, hurt people kind of stuff and why she's so hell bent on it. And I love that they've really played with our idea about who can be whom in this world. Um, so I really was happy that uh, Linsky was uh, in this production because she was, I think, a brilliant, insightful choice as an actor to play this role. She was great, and I think that she really thought hard about how she wanted to play this character. In the behind yeah. the scenes afterwards, she said that Kathleen sees her adherence to justice and morality as a strength, but she, the actor, feels that it's a weakness mm-hmm. because this this rigidity, yes, really keeps her from having any kind of emotion towards others and any kind right. of relationships. Hmm. Well, I'm excited to talk later because I've got some other thoughts, too. Um, But that's really cool that she is bringing that insight into her uh, portrayal of this character because it really does play. It plays really well. I have to say that Lamar Johnson and Kevon Woodard as um, Henry and Sam were also brilliant casting choices. Yeah. Both of these char- both of these actors brought so much to their characterizations. I fell so in love with Henry and Sam. Sam was just a cool kid. Yeah. Um, their chemistry together as actors was just excellent. And I'm really, really bummed that we don't get to keep them going. Because I was really looking forward to this foursome, right? At least yeah. for uh, one more episode. And so Quartet. with that... Yes. It's a quartet. It's a quartet. Um, <laughs> I was just devastated. Um, and anyway, I just can't wait to see Lamar Johnson uh, and uh, Kevon Woodard in the future. I, I really hope that they have both really successful careers, because I think as actors, they just have whatever it is that actors bring, that, that special you know, quality. And uh, boy, I was just blown away by their performances. I was also glad that they brought in a deaf actor to play a deaf character. Yes. Because I think that that is something that 10 years ago even was not a thing that happened often. But this and A Quiet Place, I think it's starting to become normalized that when you have someone with a disability, you bring in a person who has lived that disability. And I think that's really cool. First of all, it opens up more opportunities to people with disabilities. Second of all, it it brings a realism to it, right? Like it brings these people who know what it's like, who aren't just acting yeah so yeah he did a great job they did uh they changed this a lot for the show sam was not deaf in the game and sam also was 13 in the game rather okay. than eight. so he was closer to ellie's age which made them bond a little more i think and it, it i think it was meant to like mirror joel and ellie that was the Got point it. right 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 but yeah no i mean i think that these changes were good i think that it made the death hurt a lot more to each him down and i think that the deafness added a an interesting dimension in the behind the scenes uh they said that craig mazin actually went up to neil Druckmann and said what do you think about making sam deaf and neil said well that adds a level of reliance and i'm so mad i didn't think of that when we made the game <laughs> 
would have added a, a complex dynamic to the game. But yeah, it works. It works on screen for sure. You know what my wife said it was a misstep for the show, and I agree uh-huh. with her, is that they should have had a POV scene from Sam where he's running through the craziness of the infected oh, and he can't and there's silence. Silence. That would have been so cool. They should have that done that. That would have been good. Yeah, a little bit of focus on him. Instead they focused on Ellie. Uh, but that's yeah. I yeah, I can see. No, I I I, I think she's right. <laughs> you needed like a ten second fun. bit of that. I said, Well, you should have directed it. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, kind of to sum up my feelings, again, this was a very simple episode in a lot of ways, um, but it was so very effective at telling us these people-centered stories. And the show is just consistently doing that every single episode. It's staying very, both feet on the ground, what is this about? This is about people, this is about their relationships, this is about their choices, and the consequences of, of those choices. Uh, and in the consequences of, of those choices in a really effed up world, right? Yeah. Um, where these choices are not easy. Like, oh, like, am I going to get the red kombucha or the green kombucha today? Like, pff, come on. Um, <laughs> you know, th- this is like a very different set of stakes. And they're keeping it very well grounded, I think. And that feels really, really good. Yeah. And they sort of brought in the idea of fate in this episode, right? Yeah. In a way that I don't think that they have before. Mm -hmm. of like the inevitability of death in this world right i just think of hugo weaving saying that word inevitability (laughs) the doom of man oh yeah oh yeah let's bring elrond in here yeah it wouldn't be a lore hounds podcast without it that's right all right david you want to head into our scene by scene breakdown that sounds good to me i just wanted to drop a a quick reminder here too because i think we're getting some new listeners and just so people understand um, John has played both the games, loves the games, very into the lore. I am fresh. I've never seen or heard of The Last of Us until the HBO announcements. And I'm not watching any of the behind the scenes or listening to the official podcast or any of that other kind of stuff. I'm not living like a monk in a hermetically sealed bubble, but um, I'm just trying to approach the episodes and the show fresh each week where John has a, a lot more in-depth knowledge. Um, so I just think that helps people to contextualize our comments. Yeah, for sure. All right, we open to Chance of Freedom and Fuck You, Fedra, while flares are sent in the sky as the Kansas City resistance celebrates its victory over Fedra. Collaborators are told to surrender. The construction of this that we learn later that this was like 10, 11 days prior to Joel and Ellie rolling up, mm-hmm. you know, and we've, we've, they've used the cold open, they've used the flashback. I don't know what this technique is called. But it's like, it, I love the fact that we flash back and then we roll right up to the present day where we left off last episode. I thought that this episode, rather than doing a cutscene flashback that we just roll straight in, I thought is a really, really smart choice for this episode. Yeah, and I love seeing Joel in the shootout from the perspective of Henry. Yes. That was very cool, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't we don't flash forward, right? No, no, we just roll straight up uh, into the current. But yeah, I was going to say too that when when Joel looks over and then Henry ducks down, like you feel like, oh shit, he almost got seen, right? Like that was yeah. great. I think he did get seen. I think that Joel saw him and was like, well, I'll deal with him when he comes out. I guess. Right. Yeah. I was really, and we'll talk about it uh, later again too. But I was really shocked by the brutality of the violence towards the Fedra uniformed people, the officers, whatever you want to call them. 
And I was like, yeah. God, like what, what is it that, that, that inhumanity, that, you know, that inhumanity towards other human beings that you're going to like hang these people live like that? Like you're you know, just, it was just really horrific. And then of course, later we learn why. Um, and again, that's that construction of they showed us this thing right? They showed us the scenes of like, oh my God, like, wow, right. the, the brutality here that is being visited upon Fedra. And then later we have Henry telling Joel explicitly, yeah, they were monsters. And guess what? You do that for 20 years, guess what that's going to result in? And then click, oh, wow. But at the beginning, that was like an open question. It was like, why this level of brutality? And then yeah. later, you know, poof, yeah, okay, we get it now. Well, it's like, I don't think it's the right thing to do, but it's certainly understandable is that you want to give back what you were given. Mm -hmm. yep. But yeah, it's uh, it was rough to watch. It was a tough scene with a lot of violence. Uh, I think more violence than we've seen generally in this show, especially between humans and not just between humans and infected. I think you're right. I think you're, you're right. We've seen a little bit, but nothing like that. I mean, in the one Boston QZ, oh, it, which is, again, a, another great sort of inter-episode callback. We do have a execution, but right. at least it, it's not extrajudicial, right? You know, it has some rules, and regardless of how unfair those rules might be and how biased and, and what have you, there's still some sort of, theoretically, there's a process, and it's not just murder for murder's sake, but there's like, you know, the state is trying to exercise some control and authority, and it's using its ultimate power, which is violence and death, right? Mm -hmm. um, theoretically, fear of, the state. <laughs> yeah, theoretically the state. But yeah, well, the authority, whatever the authority is. Yeah. And then using its ultimate power, which is, um, you know, trying to create a deterrent by, by doing these public executions, um, where it doesn't seem like Kansas City was that. <laughs> right. Seems like things were a lot worse in Kansas City. And I mean, you, you, we know that Joel was in on the corruption of Fedra from the beginning. Like he was, you know, selling really drugs to Fedra yep. just to get in, but... This seems like a whole nother level, right? There's like an army yeah. of collaborator, collaborators here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had to use, they had to rely on informants and collaborators to maintain control. And that is a sheer, a, a sure sign of rot and corruption and instability, ultimately, because that is ultimately going to collapse in on itself. Yeah. It's not people being governed with consent. It's, being, it's people being governed by coercion and threat of fear and violence. Yeah. Kansas City seems like a bad city to live in. And again, they changed the city. Someone wrote in, but uh, it was Pittsburgh in the game. Okay. And uh, they changed it to Kansas City, and they made it a lot more violent. This was this whole plot line with the resistance with Fedra was sort of shoehorned into the show. This was not. Uh -huh. uh, it was sort of adapted from what was in the game, which was just, these are bandits who just run the city. They run okay. Pittsburgh in the game. Got it. Sort of like a warlord situation. Sure. Yeah. They're like yeah. they're crime lords. They're Darth, they're right. Darth Maul. They're not Palpatine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but the, this is like okay. There's an organized effort, and I think that that sort of adds a dimension to it. I do like the change. I did like Kathleen. I liked uh, uh, this actor as Kathleen. I I don't recall her name, but you know Melanie it. Linsky. Ah, yes, Melanie Linsky, who's from New Zealand. And when she talked in yep. the behind the scenes, I was like, oh, my gosh, you are not American. <laughs> Can I say, Every, between yeah. her and Bella Ramsey, 
Why is the British Empire taking back over America? It's not just the show. It's, it's everywhere. The, the quality of the Commonwealth actors far outstrips our uh, uh, American homegrown um, uh, theatrical tradition. Uh, we need to band it's, together. It's all over. Who's the one guy who was in uh, Band of Brothers and is in Millions or Billions or whatever that show is? Um, no idea. Oh, well, or then like Alexander Skarsgård or, you know, you know, there's just tons of actors uh, who are uh, from not here who just kick ass. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's no. oft remarked on. I would not know that she was not American based no on her way. accent. No way. And I've seen she her in a bunch of stuff it. with American accents, and I've never heard a hint of it. Yeah. Yeah, she's good. She's good. Good job, Melanie Linsky. All right, so Henry and Sam hide from the resistance patrols and speak in sign language to plan their escape route. I, I was confused at first. I thought Henry was deaf. I didn't realize Sam was deaf. I thought Sam was going to be, you know, the, the, the smart one here. And, and I, I don't know, it, it turned it on my head. But um, that's interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I, it took me a minute to put together that anyone was deaf because I was like, oh, wait, they're speaking in sign language. Maybe they just know it because, uh, you know, because my whatever, daughter. Yeah, reasons. <laughs> my daughter watches Miss Rachel to learn sign uh-huh. language uh, for, for toddlers because that's a, that's a new thing. I'm. All, all new parents, all current parents know Miss Rachel. She's our third parent. Okay. She uh, teaches the kids how to talk, teaches the kids how to sign, because it's actually easier for young kids to sign than speak with you know, their mouths. Uh, so I was like, maybe, maybe they were just into Miss Rachel. But no, they are actually speaking in sign language because they need to. And that was an interesting change for me. I wasn't sure how I felt about it at first, because anytime there's a change from the game, I'm like, I, I want to say, like, is this better? Or is this change for change sake? So uh-huh. far, I have not seen anything be changed for change sake. It's always all had good reasons. Interesting. We, I don't know if Miss Rachel was a thing seven years ago, ago when uh, we were um, uh, raising our daughter in, in, in her infant stage. I think she's only a couple years into it. She's a YouTuber. Okay. Oh, of course. Um, we did pick up uh, like sign language for babies type of book. And I think we learned three or four signs. Like more milk, change diaper, a couple of other things, and I have to say it really, really helped. The just in terms of of um, just from a management standpoint, like she wouldn't necessarily sign to us, but we could ask her questions, like you know, do you want more milk? And then like she'd hold out her cup, and we're like, oh, cool. And I, I swear it just you know, from a management behavioral management standpoint, it just smoothed out so many little wrinkles. So. It was a really effective technique for us, even though we didn't learn more than three or four signs. And she doesn't remember any of them, and I certainly don't remember any of them. Any. I, I remember change diaper, because that was like a cool one with your twisting your fists and then clipping your little fingers. So, Kathleen taunts Fedra informants into giving her information on the location of Henry. She promises they will not die if they help her. They'll just be imprisoned for a time. She learns that Henry is with Edelstein, who she did not know was a collaborator. Your informers inform. <laughs> we had been introduced to Kathleen's um, no-nonsense way of operating when she was interrogating Edelstein in the last episode. But when she delivers this line, it's just like, boom, <laughs> right? Like, this, this lady is not effing around, right? She is just like, bottom line, you know this is the way it is, and this is the way it needs to be, and give me what I need to know or else. Right, yeah. 
I love when uh, when the guy's like, I'm sorry, I told you everything I know. And she goes, I know oh. you did, because you're a rat. Oh, that was just so, like... And then when she goes out and then ultimately tells, you know, you know the, the next order, we'll get to the scene in a second. But, like, yeah, uh, brilliant. She does not care at all what she told them. She, well, and she starts off, lucky for you, I'm not Fedra. You know, no one has to die here. And it's like, uh, no, you're lying. <laughs> yep. All right, Kathleen orders Perry and her followers to go door-to-door to find Henry and Edelstein. She then tells Perry that when he's done with the prisoners, burn the bodies, it's faster. Right, and, and you know, like, are we really going to try these people? And she's like, of course we're not doing it. Like, wow. So, like, you really, in two scenes, you really get a very in-depth look into not her motivations necessarily, but her modus operandi, how she operates is very clear, if it wasn't clear from the last episode. And um, the fact that she commands the loyalty of a room of hardcore fighters in here, uh, who, without not a single person walking into that room, looks like they're hesitating or shirking or is even concerned about the fact that they're going to go murder their fellow human beings, regardless of, you know, why. Yeah. By the way, piece of trivia. Yeah. Perry is actually the voice actor for Tommy in the game. Okay. Oh, for uh for Joel's brother. Yeah, so I think they're trying to bring in a bunch of voice actors. I know Marlene was the voice actor from the game who played that character. Right, right. The voice actor for Ellie is going to play a character, but I won't say who because I don't want to ruin anything. Mm-hmm. Uh Joel, the voice actor, was I think part of the Robert crew from the first okay. episode. So okay. Yeah, there's a lot of people involved from the game, which is cool. I think that's cool in as much as, from a production standpoint, because those people are going to bring a kind of, I don't even know if it's esprit de corps or some sort of energy or just something like, like, you know, voice actor, oh, you did a voice, boom, that's it, you know, you're done, you're no longer associated with the property, and you just, you know, collect your royalty checks or whatever. Whereas they're really saying, no, we're acknowledging you as being having been a part of this production that has now jumped screens and is now on HBO 9 p.m. Sunday. Like, that's a, you know, marquee prestige place to be. And you know what? Why don't you come over and, and help us out with the production? Yeah. That is cool. Like, if I were that actor, you know, jobs come and go and you just, you hustle I have some high school friends. I got a whole bunch of high school friends are, are actually down in LA and working in the industry. And, you know, you hear from them from time to time or whatever, you know, and it's, you're, you're, you're jobbing, right? You're gigging, you're, you're, you're trying out, you're constantly on the hustle, you're looking for stuff and, you know, jobs come and go. And then like, if I were in that position and to have a former producer come back and say, Hey, you know what? Why don't you hang out with, uh, with us over here, do a couple of lines, showing up, up in a few scenes play this character, I would feel like really honored. And, and that yeah. would, I think, alter my energy on set and, and my delivery and stuff. I, I just think it's, I don't know, I love it. I love the idea. Definitely. I will also say that the actors, the voice actors did motion capture. So they really acted out those scenes. So they were oh, really? these characters. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. So especially, voice. yeah. So Ellie and Joel were like, you can see like, he'll like push her out of the way they have if you watch that documentary i referenced a couple episodes ago grounded okay uh, again it has spoilers for the first game so wait till the af- after the season if you haven't played the game yet 
But if you watch that, you'll see them in the crazy motion capture suits and they are acting out these scenes fully. They're, you know, in Sarah's death scene, the voice actor for Joel is like weeping over her and holding her. Wow. It's crazy. So that's why this game was so cinematic and was so easily translated to film. Interesting. Yeah, real. it sounds like real authentic performances and not just a bunch of script dialogue that some cubicle monkeys, and not to denigrate anybody who, who works in a cubicle, but, you know, just, you know, somebody bashing out some dialogue um, that then they contract a voice actor who goes into a cubicle and reads some lines. But like this, this sounds like right. a whole other level kind of game. Right. Yeah. No, it was shot like a movie. I mean, I remember that the voice actor for Joel said they had to call him back to do the Sarah death scene again because they wanted it to be better. They they wow. said, we could do this better. That, and that's cool, too. But in the translation now to this um, HBO show, like you said, um, it is in some ways, I don't know if it's easier. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. But there's a there's a, a connectivity that uh, that does allow it to to maybe e- more easily transition to a, a television screen to a television show, right? For sure. Um, one other thing about this scene, um, when Kathleen says he's not my seventh priority, Perry. Yep. The nice thing for this episode and for the pacing is is that sets a clock running, right? We know that. Uh, Kathleen and her forces are out scouring the city, so it sets the circumstances. And we know that, and we even see scenes of them looking out windows, and you know, we see uh, troops moving from building to building and vehicles moving around. So we we get the sense that the the net is out, and um, that eventually they're going to get trapped. So they don't have any more time to uh, uh, consider their options. They have to go, and they have to go now which puts Joel in the position of having to accept Henry's offer uh, in a few scenes. And last episode, we saw the sinkhole pulsing. Yes. So that should have been her first priority, but her first priority was actually revenge. Yes. Yep. Yep. Which really, yeah, again, this whole show uh, is putting people into these positions of making decisions and in impossible decisions, right? In, In some cases, decisions, you know, very... You know, if you're a Star Trek person, a Kobayashi Maru style thing where there's no winnable scenario here. And it's not about winning the scenario. It's about how you get through and the choices you, the kinds of choices you make to, to get the best outcome you can. But a lot of times there's no good outcome. Well, I think that Kathleen's actions damned the city here, right? Because their entire militarized force was killed in the end scenes. Right. And now the infected are free. They're going to go right into Kansas City and kill everybody still alive. Right. And now, yeah, that's well, and this is the this is the brilliance of this show is that, you know, this all rolls backwards, right, to what? I mean, well, we have a starting conditions of a of a brutal occupying force. But then when Henry makes his choices and that affects what happens with Kathleen and then Kathleen's choices and then Joel and Ellie entering the scene. So we have this snowballing effect where we're everybody's got focus on the wrong thing. Like you say, the, you know, they've, they've doomed themselves here. Right. And people are so much more willing to focus on their personal relationships and vendettas than they are to confront the problems like a zombie apocalypse. Right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Let's move on. So Henry and Sam arrive at Edelstein's hideout. 
When the group takes inventory, they find themselves without ammo and lacking enough food. Henry suggests they sneak their way out of the city through the tunnels. Based on their food supply, they have 11 days to decide what to do. Henry tries to help Sam feel safe by letting him decorate their hideout. The great, again, in scene construction, because we know exactly where we are, and, and the walls are bare, and we, we know what ultimately results. And so we have a marking of passage of time, even though we don't... Are, it's just great. I, just, I find it a, a really clever filmmaking. Right. It adds that suspense. It adds that ticking clock, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And in this scene, I really feel for Edelstein, even though I already know he's a collaborator, right? And I know right. that he has done bad things, and I know what his end is, but yet I feel for him because he's doing something heroic by protecting these two children in this sort of wartime-like situation. And we've got, you know prior example of those in, in, in film and literature and in real life. But like, you, you know that Edelstein's like gonna meet it in the end, and you know that he's probably not a, a good guy, but man, I really feel for him in this moment. And again, just really, really smart constructions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, all of these collaborators, I know that Kathleen is violently against them, but when you hear the individual stories like Henry of why yeah. they collaborated, mm-hmm. You're like, okay, this is a world of desperation, and who wouldn't give all they could to save their little brother with leukemia? Mm -hmm. Who, you know, these people are desperate. It's not their fault that there's not enough to go around. Now, it depends on the level of need, I think, because there could be like, okay, you wanted apples, right? Like, she's like, for apples, you gave it up. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly situations where you're like, all right, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So I think that this episode does a good job of making you empathize with people on all sides of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's tough. We don't know all of the individual stories and circumstances. And also in this scene, this is the, the first time where we really see uh, the relationship between Sam and Henry. And we deepen that relationship. And so we start our pathway on really caring for them. We really see that Henry is, you know, a good older brother. And we see that Sam is a cool and resilient kid, but like he's dealing with some really tough stuff and he needs his family and he needs that emotional support. And it's like, wait, why are we having the scene? Oh, <laughs> because it's going to, it's going to come back later. It's going to hurt. <laughs> it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt really bad. Uh, but it was really nice setup uh, to begin their relationship. Sam's a good kid. I mean, the the whole Sam and Henry plotline in the show hurt a lot more than the game, I would say. And the game hurt a lot, too. But they just added a level of character development in the show that's hard to do in a game. Yeah, they did a really good job. And yeah. aging him down helped a lot, too, I think. You know, this I kid just so, wants yeah. to color. He just yeah. wants to color and do art and live in a place that feels safe and looks nice. Right. And have people around him that are, you know, that he can you know be connected to. And Right. I mean, he lost in this episode the guy who he sees as his savior, right? Like the guy who did the treatment, I think, that mm-hmm. saved his life. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. I totally hadn't connected those two things, right? He was a, you know, he, he even said that he delivered Kathleen uh, and that he's a pediatrician. Yeah. So, uh, duh, <laughs> obvious factoid. Yeah. All right. 10 days later. Henry sees patrols out searching for him. 
Sam is hungry, but they're low on food. It has been a day since Edelstein left to get food. After a while, Henry tells Sam that Edelstein isn't coming back and has probably been killed. The two mourn their friend, and Henry paints Sam's face to make him look like the superhero from his art. Yeah, just good, uh, good storytelling here, completing the other side of Edelstein's arc, and then more deepening of uh, Sam and Henry's relationship, and then this whole thing of painting his face. I don't know, it's a really interesting thing, because it, um, in show, right, it gives Sam uh, uh, the emotional booster that he needs, but then I wonder what it's doing to us outside of the show. Because he's a kid, but he's not a kid now because he's got the makeup on. So does that alter in some way the way that we're relating to Sam? I don't know. It's just a a thought that just occurred to me now that somehow that changes how we relate to him because he's not just a plain kid, but he's he's a kid with this superhero mask on. Interesting. I think he feels capable after that, right? I mean, he's, he's gassed up. Yeah, he gets a psychological boost. This is his superhero that he draws that, that can do anything in his head. Yeah. And his brother's like, without saying anything, just tells him, no, you're that person. You can do yeah, that. Exactly. It was a really beautiful moment. And I will say, why is he painting it with his, his face with regular paint? <laughs> well, it stays right on. next to his eyes. Right. Well, it's got to stay on, right? You know, for uh, a lot of scenes and a lot of stuff, a lot of sweat and dust and running around. Yeah, if it were (laughs) anything else, it would probably have rubbed off because, you know, it's a couple of days before they get out of the city. Sure, sure. I was just like, is this non-toxic paint? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think your context right now, right? Is that washable marker? Um, Oh, yeah. yeah, Is that stain removed? (laughs) That's a big thing on my mind quite often. Yeah. A, a child with an uncapped marker is a, uh, da- is, <laughs> is a dangerous weapon. For sure. For sure. When Henry checks to see if it is safe to leave, he sees Joel in a shootout with the Resistance, which we saw from Joel's perspective last episode. Joel sees Henry, but Henry ducks. Henry tells Sam he has a new plan. Um, a brilliant, just the way that the, the Flash back rolls into the present and then gives us the pov on the other side um just smart really really smart well done well executed um bravo yeah yeah i don't think there's much else to say we talked about this a while before yeah so henry and sam climb the building that joel and ellie are in they walk over to the glass which does not wake up joel they point their unloaded guns at ellie and joel and we are at the same point as the end of last episode yeah, and we get to see how it's done. I had theorized in the last episode that Henry and Sam, at least Henry, were a little bit different. And really, they're just some scared kids who uh, have grown up in this world and so know how to get around and, and do things. Um, it, it's not like uh, Henry's a, an extraordinarily deadly and crafty, you know, Assassin's Creed, you know, whatever, right? He's just a, a kid who's grown up in this world, and, and Joel is just sleeping a little too soundly. Yeah, and they did change Henry a lot from the game, because in the game, Henry and Sam have been traveling with a group, and they have had to fought, fight their way through a bunch of infected, a bunch of, you know, bandits, things like that. So Henry is a lot more of a, of a shooter, of a, of a, combat, a combatant, in okay. the game, 
Whereas here they said, let's make him reliant on Joel the same way that Sam's reliant on Henry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the circle of reliance, really. I think it's a really um, smart set of choices that they've made here to, yeah. to translate that. As a, makes sense. Yeah, as a, as a, 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 a watcher only, not a game player person. Seamless, right? It it all is logical. It all tracks. It all feels right for the characters and the choices that they're making. Right. Everyone in this world has some level of survival skills. Like you see, Henry yes. knows how to ration food. Right. But they don't necessarily have the combat skills, especially if they haven't traveled outside of a QZ. Yeah, like he does the eleven days math in his head. He's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, well, that should be about that, right? Uh, and he's asking all these questions about what about water? What about bathrooms? Like, yeah. You know, that's like a major issue in a in a situation where, you know, the infrastructure of society has broken down. Like, how are you going to handle those kinds of things? Very important. And he's asking all those right questions. So, yeah, really clear demonstration of um, base survival skills in this world. All right. Well, now that we're caught up to last episode, I think it's time we take a break. And we're back and ready to move on with the timeline. The two pairs negotiate clumsily, but Henry decides to trust Joel. Henry introduces himself as the most wanted man in Kansas City, just ahead of Joel. They share a meal and Joel reluctantly agrees to travel out of the city together. Uh, Great scene. Great, um, you know, having holding them at gunpoint, the way that Sam is holding his weapon and standing over him um really really good acting for a child actor um and just kind of and hilarious right there's like um that's just his voice that's he's a, he's got an asshole voice <laughs> like that he has an asshole much. voice made me laugh so much i mean that was <laughs> it was such an ellie line new for the show but it fit the character so well again i think that every episode i'm more convinced that bella ramsey is ellie yeah oh that's great that's really good to hear um pedro pascal's eye acting in this scene Wow. Right. He's holding a crunch, right? Like he's like, you know, doing like a, he's like halfway up and he's holding it there. And then his eyes are bouncing back and forth. And when Henry starts talking to Sam with sign language, you know, he's like looking, he's not moving his body at all. His eyes are just tracking stuff and clocking everything that he needs, you know, just registering all of these little facts. And I just think Pedro Pascal just killed it in this, in this scene. For a guy who wears a mask all the time in his other big show, <laughs> he sure is good at facial acting. Well, he's not even in that thing. In oh, yeah, anymore. you're right. Yeah. He's just doing the voice. That's such a weird situation. But I guess that's how it really is. he made room for The Last of Us. So I'm glad that he's able to be flexible with that. I think that might be part of why The Mandalorian took a while to come back. Oh, interesting. He, that's good I theory. Mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know this. I'm speculating. Right. But yeah. Uh, it, it would make sense that they shot this whole thing for a while, and because of that, he couldn't do the Mandalorian stuff so much. Look, you ate. We didn't kill each other. Let's call this a win-win and move on. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. And then this uh, bonding with the first little bonding that Sam and Ellie have, you know, asking age and sharing names, and then when she, like, you know, hits, hits Joel on the shoulder, like, come on, introduce yourself. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> you know, like really, really sweet. But it was, you could really start to feel the chemistry between Bella Ramsey 
and Kivon uh, Woodard here in this scene that, you know, you're like, oh yeah, there, there's a magnetism here that's going to show up. Um, it's going to be very powerful. It felt so organic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was interesting to change it sort of to this uh, older sister, younger brother relationship, mm-hmm. because in the game, like I said, they are close to each other in age. Like she's, right. I think, 15, he's 13. That's pretty much your peer, right? That's not right. That's yeah. not so much a younger brother. But this, it's like, she is just ready to parent him almost. <laughs> she, right. she wants to make him feel better. She wants to cheer him up. And that's why it hurts so much more later. And she's not infantilizing him at the same time. She's relating to him where he is. And she's learning from him, right? She learns some sign language. They, they, they share a love of, of various things. And so I love that she has that protective bonding nature, that protect, but without, being, without treating him like something that needs to be, um, it's not like a little fuzzy bunny or something like that, that is just like, oh, so cute or whatever. It's yeah. like, no, this is a person who's got mad survival skills. Um, and I want to be, be involved with this person as this older sibling relationship. Yeah, definitely. Joel and Henry discuss the depravity of the Kansas City Fedra. Henry reveals that he was an informant. Joel does not want to work with a rat, but after hearing Henry's pitch, agrees to let him go plan the route. Ellie and Sam laugh together. I'm, this is where I'm really bummed that Henry doesn't get to be more of our story. He is such quick of mind. He's clever. He has such an easy charm. Uh, imagine being... Um, Lamar Johnson, and standing eye-to-eye with Pedro Pascal and acting the hell out of this scene, right? You know, you're you're a young actor earlier in your career, and here's here's a shooting star right now, right? Pedro Pascal's stock is way, way up, and you're going toe-to-toe with him, and you're holding your own. Not only your character is holding his own, but you as an actor are holding your own as well. I was yeah. loving it when there's a couple of lines, like when, uh, when he says pointing an unloaded gun at you is the most I've ever come to being violent. I was like, wow, well, it was just electric, right? The way he delivered that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure that it's going to be easier for him to get roles at this point because I he has so. gone toe to toe with so. Pedro Pascal. He has been on a huge HBO hit and he was well received. I haven't seen anybody complain about his, his acting. I think right. he's been uh, positively received universally. That's great. Another really beautiful construction here is the blocking and the lights of the way that Pedro Pascal and Lamar Johnson are standing there in front of that window. So it's like completely blown out, white behind us. They're both silhouette in dark. And um, right, the, just the whole light-dark construction that they're they're in this dark place and they're trying to get to the light kind of motif thing. I don't know, I don't know how intentional or what they were doing with that, but it just visually, I I found I found it very arresting and beautiful. Most of this production feels intentional, so I'm sure you're onto something there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when Joel changes his mind, that was so good. Um, there are lots of theories out there in sort of the literary world about like how many stories are there actually like is there six or seven stories you know person meets person falls in love with person you know revenge all these kinds of things right and there are some who theorize that there's only actually one true story 
and that is the story of the human heart in conflict with itself. And I love this moment for that because Joel's heart is in conflict with himself. This, here's this kid who's a self, um, uh, self-described rat, a collaborator, uh, who's clever and smart and uh, is trying to do something that Joel is trying to do, taking care of you know, a- another person. And he's got no other choices. He has to. And so there's this moment of conflict where he's like, ah, he's like, okay, how do we do this? Right. And that, yeah. that moment of transition that Pedro Pascal delivers is really, really meaty, really, really good. Like you said before, he is great at that facial acting. He's great at showing that conflict on his face. The whole thing with Henry, I think that there's a lot of empathy going on because Joel, mm-hmm. he has put up a ton of walls, but we've seen yes. those walls coming down throughout the last few episodes. And I think by this point, Ellie has them down far enough where he sees an older person taking care of a kid and he is ready to just love them a little mm-hmm. bit. Right. He can't just look past them. He can't just throw them aside. I mean, I think that Joel, episode one or two, might have killed Henry for holding him good up point. like that. Yeah, good point. Just but from a threat point, response. Yeah, just purely as a threat elimination, potential threat elimination. Yeah, I think that Joel probably, I mean, he definitely could have disarmed Sam for sure. Sure. He might have tried to go for it if mm-hmm. uh, if it were earlier in the season and maybe if he didn't care for ellie as much and worry about her safety as much right yeah right yeah good point joel has changed a lot already and this is just another step on that journey and interesting you, you know what you were saying too about the the walls that joel has up whereas henry is playing quite the opposite where he's being really authentic and really truthful and being really vulnerable um, in, in opposition to, in, in opposite balance of Joel's walled fortress, you know, sort of, you know, arms crossed, rumph, right? And like, <laughs> no emotion getting out. And here's Henry is like, I'm worse. I'm a collaborator. Like, that's the worst thing you can be in this world right now. And, and he owns it honestly and straightforwardly. Like, that's, wow, really powerful. Definitely. So Henry outlines his plan to avoid Kathleen's area by going through the tunnels. Fedra drove the infected underground years ago, but Henry has information from a Fedra soldier that the infected were cleared out a few years ago. Henry has the plan, and Joel has the guns. Yeah, really um, great. Uh, What is that? Oh, this is your brilliant plan? No, that's my dicey as fuck plan. <laughs> no dumb shit. Like, there's no better option. So what do you want to do? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this whole world is, fo- is filled with plan Zs, right? Yeah, it's just, right. You can't have a good plan in this world most of the time. Unless you want to go live with Bill. I feel like that's a pretty good plan. <laughs> yeah, and the moment that you run into a clicker, your plans are thrown out the window, right? Yeah, I mean, the fact that Henry, when he's pressed, is like, okay, maybe there's a couple. Yeah. <laughs> that would make me worry a ton, because where there's sure. a couple infected, there's a lot of there's infected. More. Right. And I think this is the first scene where we actually, do they say clicker in an, uh, previous episodes, or is this the first time that we're actually given the name clicker? I had that thought, too, so I think this is the first one. Okay. This is the first name drop. 
I don't think they've named the other infected in the show. They did in the in the post credits. They called the big one a bloater, which is okay. the name from the game. So they have confirmed that that's what that was supposed to be. Uh, I think that they named the runners in the post credits too, which are the the starting infected, the ones that are fast, the runners. Okay. So those are our three categories that we've seen so far. Got it. So we've got a clue now as to the uh, the what's heaving underground, right? So they they set that up nicely, right? So they gave us the visual again. Give us a visual first. And then later exposition, so that the two connect. We feel smart. Our brain feels happy because it's made connection, and the story and the plot line move forward effortlessly. It's yeah. really, really smart. Yeah, they did a really good job with this. It was, uh, it felt like a ticking time bomb the whole time. Mm-hmm. It really did. It really felt like anything could go wrong at any time. I actually, in my head, I I didn't remember the sniper scene for some reason until it happened. Uh huh. And so when we got there, I immediately w- said, oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> because I knew together. it was coming then. Right. So the Fellowship of the Fungus enters the tunnels. <laughs> you did not. <laughs> you did just not. But That's I did. <laughs> Joel tells Ellie. Wordsmith. <laughs> <laughs> Joel tells Ellie to take out her gun, which he puts, which she pulls from her jacket pocket. I, I loved his eye roll here. Yes. <laughs> Joel and Ellie both correct Henry's assumption that they are father and daughter very quickly. They come right. to a room filled with children's possessions and art, and they agree to rest there. Creepy AF. This was just so haunting, right? I, I was yeah. just like on pins and needles. When the, when the kids were playing soccer against the goal, I'm like, no, like, just be silent. Like, you have no idea if there's children clickers <laughs> running around in here or not. Ah. Yeah. And in the game, there were infected uh-huh. in the tunnels. So I'm thinking, okay, they're going to attract people right now. The whole time yeah. I'm on the edge of my seat. And then they just faked me out and they didn't. They saved yeah. it for later. They, they do that a lot through the entire show is they bank what, you, what, what a lesser show would have done. They bank that and they let you sail smoothly through the scene. Like during the woods, when they're first driving in, in Bill's truck, where they pull off for that night of rest. That whole time, I'm just waiting for bandits to come out of the woods, right? And they don't. Um, and so they keep, you know, or at the, um, the tunnel under the city, I'm just waiting. Okay, that's a kill box, right? Like, there's going to be people all over the place. They're going to capture them. Yeah. That's going to be it. But they don't, right? So they, they do that constantly where they let you glide through a scene that a lesser show would take advantage of. Well, because that now gets you into a false sense of security where later it hurts so much more and it shocks you so much more. And it's not cheap shock value. It's literally like, I am so stressed out from Mm -hmm. being in these situations. And finally, the thing I've most feared the whole time is coming true. And we don't see a child clicker in or uh, infected or whatever they're called uh, in this playroom underground school scene. But we do see one later. Right. So again, very subtle. I think that's the first child infected in uh-huh. either the game or the show. Ooh. Other than Sam. Really other than Sam, yeah. clearly. But uh, that's, I don't count that because that's really like the first part. Sure. Whereas this was definitely, I think we can call that a clicker. Okay. Yeah. 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 You're right. Cause she's, yeah, it's in the truck with her and, and sort of making those sounds and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Joel or uh, Ellie, what happened to them? Joel. Maybe they didn't follow the rules and they all got infected. <laughs> it's just like, oh, so follow guess, my rules, Ellie. That's right. He doesn't need to say that. 
the back and forth banter them, you know, even though we don't get a lot of it this episode, it, it, that was a nice reminder of that, that relationship. Yeah. There's a bunch of that stuff, like later when she's talking to Henry and Sam and saying, oh, well, he puts up this exterior, but then I just ask him again and again. And eventually he gives it. <laughs> That's so, it just shows how their relationship has developed. And, and yeah. so by the time he asks, do you trust me? You kind mm. of feel like they do know each other. Mm. Whereas I don't think that it would have felt like that even last episode. There's a scene during the shootout, I'll point that out too. Something out that, that caught my eye in that regard. Right. So, well in the children's room, they come across Savage Starlight, a comic book you can collect for Ellie in the game. They also come across a drawing of Ish, whose story can be read in full in a series of notes in the game. Ellie learns the sign language for Endure and Survive, the tagline to the comic, and the episode title. I love this idea of this collectible comic in the show because you know i mean in the game because like a lot of games oh you got to get your health pack your you know the level up little thing for your weapon or whatever so it's all very utilitarian i mean i have no idea Uh i've never played the game so i don't know what i don't know if there's a a benefit to collecting savage starlight but i love the idea i love that I, i love it even more that there's this collectible item and and that just gives you that little like thing when you find one, you just must feel like, oh, cool, I found one, right? Like that's I, I love that idea. Well, when you find it in the game, Ellie comments on it and it goes, oh, cool, I love this one. This is where blah blah blah, and like she she nice. sort of gasses up about it. Wow, very cool, very cool. Yeah. So when she's going, oh, I have these issues. I, yeah. I was just I was tickled. I thought it was very <laughs> enjoyable. A lot of people have been waiting for this moment. Yeah. And Kevon Woodard um, just brings it in the scene with Bella uh, when he's teaching her the signs for Endure and Survive. And they're so close, and, and he's just matching Bella beat for beat, right? And he's bringing so much in his, um, uh, in his hands, you know, for the words Endure and Survive. I just really, I just so, right. And it's just, it sucks even more, right? The ending sucks even more in the bad way, right? In the good, bad way, um, because of all of this great acting and characterization and character themselves um, that we've gotten up to this point. Right. So I mentioned Ish. Yes. Ish's name is on the drawing that I think Ellie finds. So there was a, are, are you talking about, the, uh, there was a, a drawing of two like police officers that said something about like these are our protectors. Is that the thing that you were? Yes, that was I on believe, the wall. I believe the that's show. the same thing. Okay, got it. Yeah. So the name Ish was written above one of the people. Got it. Okay. I couldn't see it. Yeah. I didn't see what it what 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 was written there. I just said our protectors or whatever. Okay. So Ish in the game is a character who you never meet, but you find a bunch of notes from because in the game, the way that they build out the story, not even the story, but the world and sort of these side stories is that you can find these notes as you go and read them. They're like a page long each. And every time you read them, you get a little bit more of the story of the person who wrote them. Okay. Sometimes they're one-offs, but Ish was one of the longer ones and probably the fan favorite as far as the, the stories go in the game. So Ish was somebody who holed up in the tunnels and he wanted to live alone, but he got lonely. He was safe, but he got lonely. And he would just watch people sometimes and try to decide if they were safe to invite. And he ends up inviting a couple families to live with him because he feels like if they have kids, they'll be less 
likely to be violent towards him. Uh-huh. And he ends up building this sort of community where wow. they have, you know, a kid's area, they have the adult area, they have a self-sustaining, you know, food supply, things like that. They have safety, they have rules. And in the end, the infected come and kill everybody. And that's where you have the they didn't suffer thing that I talked about. Right. Mm-hmm. I think Ish is implied to escape. But okay. everyone else, I think, dies. So it in is the a game, really right. tragic. Okay. Yeah, in, in the game. It is a really tragic story, and I'm glad that they did a little nod to it without going too deep into it. As a uh, viewer only, I had no detection that this that, uh, of anything. Like, there's no nothing feels shoehorned here. Nothing feels added just because hey, we want to add it because it's a not you know it's member berries for the the game players. This feels natural. Joel says I've heard about places like this. Yeah. And you can understand from a human standpoint, okay, we're down here, we're safe, we have ability to control our exit and entry points, blah, 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 right? They're tactically, strategically, there's all kinds of benefits. Even in The Walking Dead, right? They occupy a prison at one point in one of the early seasons, right? Again, because it's hardened and ability to control the space in a way. Um, so logically, it all makes sense. And, you know, that, that there would be, like, kids drawing, like, oh, these are our protectors or whatever. All of that feels really natural. So, uh, again, really smooth transition from video game to television show. It reminds me of how in Andor, since we're going to talk about quality, lack of fan yes. service. Mm-hmm. In Andor, they had a couple artifacts that were clearly from, yes. like, the prequel trilogy, uh, yep. The Phantom Menace, in Luthen's shop. Yep. And you could see them and recognize them if you saw deeper, but it did not take away if you didn't know what they were. And exactly. this is the kind of fan service that is just fun. Like an Easter egg is great. Mm-hmm. A whole plot line where you're just going to bring everybody back and Boba Fett really survived. That's right. a different thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Here's a basket of member berries just because. <laughs> Somehow Palpatine returned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's not go down that road right now. Save it for the Star Wars podcast. Truly. So Joel tells Henry if he was collaborating with Fedra to protect Sam, that's all right. Henry tells Joel that Sam had leukemia and to get Fedra's supply, he gave up Kathleen's brother, the leader of the resistance movement in Kansas City, an all-around great guy. Henry says he is a bad guy because he did a bad guy thing. Joel is emotionally withholding. This, um, again, Pedro Pascal's face and eye acting in this, uh, amazing. You can just feel the, uh, gear, the, the intellectual gears and the emotional engine running at high speed in Joel as he's trying to process what would I do? How do I, re- how do I, how would I relate in that situation? Uh, you know, here's this guy who's shown me nothing but trust. But yet, like, uh, like he was a rat, like just all of it is just at play. And um, Pascal is just holding it all in, right? Just just physically holding it all in. But like, I could see it on his face and in his eyes. A really just phenomenal performance. Well, I think that Joel is thinking in that moment, how far would I go to protect Ellie? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's a hard question to ask, especially because that's not his daughter. That right. is his right. sort of adopted daughter. There's, a, there's a, a line here where he goes, you may not be her father, but you were someone's. Mm, mm, mm. So good. Yeah. It, uh, it is absolutely part of his character that he is going to protect the youngins. Yeah. 
Um, then we learn about Kathleen's brother. Um, a really efficient storytelling in this, right? Like we never meet this guy. We we know that it's this big motive. Well, we'll we'll know even more that this is this big motivator, and it's really great because in this scene, Henry's priming the pump for the next scene, right? So he talks about he talks up Kathleen's brother, great guy. Follow him to the ends of the earth, and I turned him in, and then boom, next scene. Here we have Kathleen's point of view uh, about her brother. So really efficient, and we get everything we need to know about Kathleen's motivations and Henry's motivations and why Henry is being hunted in just a few lines of dialogue. And I think that in Joel's head, in addition to considering how he would feel about protecting Ellie, he goes, well, damn, that was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, huh. So matter of fact. Oh, good job, Pedro Pascal, and good job, Lamar. So Perry finds Kathleen in her childhood room to tell her they have not found Henry or Joel. She tells him how kind her brother Michael was and that she knows she isn't the kind person he is. She tells Perry that Michael told her to forgive Henry, but that she will not. Perry reassures her that they are with her because Michael was a great man, but she brought change. Her delivery of the line, not doing so good. <laughs> like, it was just like, <laughs> oh, it's like you come in from you're playing outside and you just got mud on your new pants or, you know, you're on your clothes. And then your parent looks at you and just like, I'm so disappointed. Like, it was just brutal. Yeah. Devastating. And Kathleen is so unhinged that I could have just as easily seen her take out her pistol and shoot him in the head right there. I, I was not half wondering when she said, how did you know I'm here? And it's like, we talked to her, your mother. She's like, you talked to my mother? Bang. I was waiting for Perry to dive out of the way of the bullet, you know? Yeah. Oof. Oof. I mean, it's pretty interesting to see that she's in her childhood room because yeah. it seems like for some reason, everybody is a migrant in this world. Mm-hmm. Like everybody has moved to a different city where it might be safer. Maybe they heard it's safer there. Yet she stayed in Kansas City. She was born and raised. Which is kind of brings light to the Edelstein situation, because you're like, she's older than the pandemic. So that means that how did she end up there with her doctor? And, and sort of that sort of stitches all that together. Good enough for the show, right? It's less cute. It is, it is mm-hmm. very much something that feels natural and not forced. Like they, they didn't travel together, which is, right. I think, better. And then Perry's like, yeah, my, my home was a couple hundred miles away and not worth, you know, going back to. So it's like, oh, okay. So they're not creating an unreality here. We're just creating a happenstance circumstance where, um, where somebody is from Kansas City and grew up here and, and happened to be this leader. So Right. He was so beautiful. I'm not. I never was. So this really sets up some interesting stuff that I think is interesting about Kathleen's character and um, uh, Linsky's performance. Um, So she tells this story of how her brother would reassure her about this box that they had, right? The safety, the safe place. So she was prone to fear and anxiety, maybe to some degree. And he was sort of the older protector calming force, and he helped her create this sense of psychological safety, right? Uh-huh. So my theory, um, let me put on my tinfoil hat here, is that 
Yeah, she's lashing out at Henry in anger, right? You know, that she's looking for revenge, and, and uh, that's fine. That's a, a pretty base, simple story. But I think there's something else going on here, and that's what this box uh, conversation points to, is that by her brother being killed, her sense of psychological safety was traumatized, damaged, destroyed, what have you. And that by going after Henry, she's trying to regain and rebuild a sense of psychological safety by dominating and murdering people uh, and by eliminating any possible potential threat. Um, And Henry's just part of that. So people who don't have power use force and coercion right? Um, her brother, Michael, I think it was his name, he had power, right? He had, the, he had the ability to sway people and have people fall in love with him. She doesn't. She's, you know, she, I was never that beautiful, uh, you know. But then Perry says to her, but you're the one who actually changed things. Right. So she has the ability to, to, to affect change and use um, coercion and force uh, with people to affect change. And her sense of psychological safety is so compromised that she's pushing these boundaries further and further out using this, you know, her soldiery, you know, all of these, you know, the free army people here to try to recreate a box that is big enough that no threat can get to her anymore. So that's my theory. I'm I'm thinking about your theory. I think it's fascinating. Uh I think it also connects to... A few seasons ago, Henry draws a box and says, this is Kathleen's zone. This is where she has control. Oh, good pick. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's perfect. It's back to that thing that you were saying before where they are showing you something Mm. and then they tell you later and they tell you what Mm. it means later. Wow. That's even better now that I know, like I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, he totally, he draws a box, Kathleen's area. Boom. Wow. This is podcasting, guys. This is it. (laughs) Discovery in the moment. That's awesome. I, I also find it really fascinating that Perry's like, yeah, we all loved your brother, man, but he didn't get shit done. You did. Right. So we trust you. We follow you. And then she see, you see the welling of emotion. Like when somebody says, hey, I trust you. I'm putting my life in your hands. That's a gift of a kind, right? That's a, that's a powerful thing. Um, and I think we're going to, this is going to be this is a weird segue. Uh, but talking in the future, we're going to be doing a book podcast about the Wizard of Earthsea, and there's this whole thing about true names, and mm-hmm. a character changes true names with another character. It's a huge gift. It's a huge psychological booster. It's a huge power booster, right, as well. It's you, you own something of somebody else. And so when he says, we're with you, <laughs> and she takes the moment to really feel that, and then she takes a breath. Right. Now let's go kill all of them. <laughs> right. Like, let's right. go. Let's murder right. all these mofos. Right. But it really just a beautiful psychological moment because Perry is giving her power um, in a way, you know, through his trust and through their, you know, their, um, this armed deadly force that is going to go out and do her bidding. And Perry's relationship was teetering on the edge with her. And mm. he finally just goes, nah, we're good, man. And yeah. she says, yep, yep, we are good. Let's go do this. Yeah, brilliant. So the fellowship is targeted by a sniper, <laughs> and so Joel good. sneaks so, past him. Can I? Can I just give you kudos for for the fellowship of the fungus? I I, I really like that. Well, thank you. Much appreciated. 
The Fellowship is targeted by a sniper, and Joel sneaks past him to secure the safety of the others. Joel kills the sniper and takes his weapon just in time for Kathleen and her resistance to respond to the sniper's report of them and arrive shortly thereafter. Do you trust me? Really, really interesting scene here. Um, um, There's a a bunch to actually take apart. Uh, I I love um, when they're just walking along and, and Sam... I was trying to think about this, like, why was Sam asking Henry why they can't use their flashlights? It's like, duh, like, you know, nobody around. And then Henry's like, there's nobody here. There's nobody here. There's nobody here. Bang! You know, like, okay, (laughs) nicely done, right? And we know that, right? As we're trained as viewers to know that, like, if somebody's going on about something, it's like, oh, no, that's going to turn around here in a second. So a really nice way to amp up the the anticipation uh, for what's about to happen. You know, Henry is saying that Joel can be in charge of surviving mm-hmm. while he will be in charge of the route. And then when Joel mm-hmm. tries to be in charge of survival, Henry second guesses him. What's going mm-hmm. on, Henry? What's mm-hmm. going on? Right. Yeah. He's, he's uh, stressed out and, and not making good choices here. Uh, I loved uh, um, Ellie's line, you know, when she's like, when she divulges where they're going. And uh, Joel is like, you know, like he's upset. And she's like, it's a huge state. It can fit two more people. <laughs> right. Like, here's, here's Joel, who is, you don't give that kind of information away. You don't give that kind of power away. Because even though it's a huge state and he doesn't know exactly where we're going, it's still more information that you should be sharing with somebody. Right. And then she's just, they don't really know each other. Away. Right. They don't no. really know Henry and Sam yet. Yeah. And then Henry demurs and says, let's just call it a win and, and move on. Yeah. Joel's tactical sense here is great. Like, he keeps his head about him. He pays attention. He realizes it's a single, sh- a single shooter who's not changing positions, right? Like, that's something, like, you shoot a couple of times, you move. You shoot a couple of times, you move, so that they can't, like, get a bead on your location. And then the fact that whoever's shooting at him has really bad aim, like, they're hitting all over the place. And so he's like, ah, okay. This is, he, he understands what the situation is and, and is able to deal with it. And I just, I really like seeing Joel operate like that. You know, one of the things that I will say they made unrealistic compared to the game is that Joel didn't die seven times trying to get to the <laughs> sniper. You know, when I played the game, I, I, he definitely died seven times trying to get there. That's pretty funny. I did enjoy him sneaking up behind. I enjoyed that he gave the man a choice mm. if he could live or die. And the guy basically just chose, well, I'm old. I better just do my job. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like in the moment, he's just like, all you got to do is just wait, you know, give me the gun and wait an hour. And you're like, why would you make that choice? And here he is facing Joel with a gun right then and there versus facing Kathleen in about five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's part of it, right, is that he knows that Kathleen is coming. Mm-hmm. He already called it in. Yeah, damn straight. So he just wants to subdue Joel enough to keep him there. Really smart uh, strategically on Kathleen's part to like set these perimeter points around. She knows that that's a potential exit route. So rather than taking main force units and sticking them out there, Put a watcher out there and somebody who can just pin, you know, pin them down for a minute till they can respond. So very, very clever on, on Kathleen's part. Yeah. Assuming that that was Kathleen who made that decision and not Perry. But anyway, the collective, right? Right. Well, a good leader knows how to delegate, too, and how to pull on the expertise of her followers. Absolutely. So Kathleen's caravan 
runs through the cars toward Ellie, Henry, and Sam. Joel covers them with the sniper rifle and succeeds in killing the lead driver. The truck crashes into a house and explodes, leaving the house in flames. Another great line from Kathleen here. It's like, why do you think you're in front? Clear them out of the way. It's just like, come on, like, stop telling me what I know. You you are there for a reason with the truck for a reason. I thought that was right. Right. Yeah. You you literally have a, a, a what would you call the bulldozer? Sort of a yeah. light bulldozer. Mm-hmm. Bulldozer blade thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just love how she is not taking any bullshit from anybody, even the right. people who are loyal to her. <laughs> oh, and another good callback is remember, Joel says a couple episodes ago um, that they would bulldoze the roads. Oh. And here we have a bulldozer truck I forgot right, about to move that. all this stuff out of the way. Yeah. So good call. Well done, show. Well done, show. Kathleen's resistance surrounds Henry, Sam, and Ellie. Henry tells Ellie to take Sam and run. He gives himself up, and Kathleen is about to shoot him, but something stirs at the burning house, distracting her. It ends the way it ends. So when this truck started to tip over, like, you know, I'm like waiting for the simple construction. Like, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for Joel to shoot Kathleen, right? Obviously. Um... But then when the truck tips over, I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. A little, little deus ex machina action here, you know, saved by the writers. It was a little simplistic, but I was all for it. I was all, this, this was a great scene. Uh, it was well, wild. They also set it up for two episodes, right? It wasn't just a, a shock surprise. It right, was the sinkhole and then the discussion about how they pushed everybody underground and how they say that they got rid of all the infected, but maybe there's mm-hmm. a couple left. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of hinting towards it. There was a lot of buildup of suspense of times where, in fact, could have come out and didn't. So I think that if this was, first of all, not the first time we saw infected in two episodes, and second, if it was not built up as this looming threat, this would have felt like a deus ex machina, but I don't think it felt like that. I thought it felt like the natural consequence of Kathleen neglecting this issue with uh-huh, the sinkhole. Yes. Yes. Uh, being reckless and focusing yes. on Henry. Mm-hmm. And finally, it bites her in the butt that she can't focus on the real problems and she's too focused on quote unquote justice. Nice. Yeah. And this is a result of choices that were made, you know, years ago to drive the infected underground. So we're seeing, you know, action, reaction, you know, consequence of action here years later. And you're right. They, it, it's it's not Deus Ex Machina because it's not out of nowhere. So I think you're right uh, that it was completely set up, and I think that's probably why I could accept it. I was like, oh, okay. In the back of my mind, my mind is like, no, 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 no. Here's all the evidence. We knew this was coming. There's no doubt that you know uh, infected are going to come erupting out of the ground at some point. So why not now? Right. Well, and I think that this was an interesting moment for Kathleen too because this was really the result of her problematic thinking. You know, mm. I've, I've talked about, I think, on one of our other podcasts, I don't know which one, about how I've read some psychology books and mm-hmm. I've, I've uh, read a book by a, a person who she did a lot of couples counseling and talked about the way that relationships break down. Uh-huh. And one of the biggest ways is that one of the partners or both of the partners become obsessed with being right and not being yes. slighted rather Uh, than empathizing with their partner. uh And you think you can translate the same thing here, where the pride of Kathleen 
wanting Ooh. to get her justice, wanting to this be good. right, wanting to not be wrong, wanting to correct the yeah. wrongs is really what leads to her downfall and what leads to the breakdown of this whole society. Wow. Wow. And it's erupting from underground. It's erupting up and out of her psychology, right? Like if, you know, if you're in, in that kind of relationship, you know, things are going to come out that you've been not dealing with, right? That are, I don't want to say suppressed, but like that you're not actively dealing with. Then they sort of suddenly emerge like out of seemingly out of nowhere. Right. Mm, right. Very good. Cool. I really would love to, there's so many ethical uh, quandaries and, and moral complexities here. I'd really love to talk to like an ethicist or, or moral philosopher about this show, because there's so many sort of train car scenarios here, or as you say, like she puts revenge over, um, over dealing with the true threat. Um, this is all like really, really cool stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, I turned to my wife while we were watching the discussion of Michael versus Sam's life, uh -huh. saying this is just a modified trolley problem, right? Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're a moral philosopher in our audience, please write in and we'd love to have you on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, John, this is what happens when you fuck with fate. Truly. truly. <laughs> yeah. And boy, boy, does it come back after that. Oh, man. And the way that she does drop, it, it just ends the way it ends. That's just the way it is, you know. <laughs> You, yeah. you got to pay for your, your sins. And she does, right? She, she does get her moral comeuppance, right? In the sort of fantasy fairy tale sort of way. Right. Yep. She does not have a great ending. So let's get there. The truck slides into the ground, leaving a hole. Out of the hole comes an army of infected, including runners, clickers, and the first bloater in the series. Joel covers Ellie, who repeatedly narrowly escapes. Perry sacrifices himself to try to delay the bloater and protect Kathleen. Kathleen points a gun at Ellie, Joel, and Henry, and Sam, but is attacked by a child clicker, allowing the four to escape. So yeah, this really, when, with Joel up in the window here, um, it, it really did feel video game-ish in that moment, right? Like, yeah. you know, the million games where you're, you know, shooting down on, on in a sniper, you know, type of way. Right. Yeah, this was... Uh... This was definitely a direct lift from the video game. There's one mm -hmm. scene that I wish they did that they didn't where Joel had to protect Ellie, where I think it may have been in Bill's town because, you know, Bill had all those booby traps oh, and right. he got, mm -hmm. he got sucked. He, he got caught in a trap that pulled his leg and hung him upside down. Mm -hmm. And while he's trying to get down, the infected come in and he has to shoot the infected to protect Ellie. Oh, okay. That would have been a fun thing to watch, I think. Sure. But this was good. I mean, this was they're they're using the video game scenes, the video game like gamified parts sparingly, mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. think that they're using them well. Judiciously. Yeah. I did love the nonverbal communication that Joel and Ellie have. So she looks up at him and then like looks over at the vehicle with the broken out window. And then he receives that communication and covers her as she makes her way over there. So I like that. Like it's like, okay, the these two are even they're, they're building that kind of thing like you might experience if you're on a sports team, right? You know, when you're trying to pass the ball to, you know, a fellow uh, player, um, right? You can do the no-look pass or, or what have you. It felt cool to see their relationship developing to that level. Um, this child clicker, the way it did its sort of gymnastics move, I was like, oh, yeah. This thing is not burdened by the conventional wisdom of like, 
we walk on our feet and we wear shoes and we, you know, we don't put our, we don't, you know, we don't do certain things where this thing was just like, I, I need to move the way that I need to move to, you know, fulfill, you know, my imperative. And it was beautiful to see that, that actor, however they blocked and staged that, that was absolutely amazing. I love that they are showing us that the fungus will use the tools of the body it inhabits and not be mm. limited by some kind of protocol. Exactly. 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 Right. It's just going to move the way it needs to move to, to get where it wants to go. Doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, since we're on the subject of these infected, because mm-hmm. we saw a lot of them this episode, we saw a lot of different levels of them, too. Mm-hmm. A question that has come up is, why aren't there more clickers and bloaters, right? Mm-hmm. Apparently, Neil Druckmann has been on record now, and it might be on the official podcast, I haven't listened yet, but saying basically the transformation from runner to clicker to bloater is very difficult, and so Mm. you have to have been a hardy human to survive that transition, whereas most infected will die as runners. Interesting. So they have an internal logic. That's good. And if they're sticking to it, that's good. Right. So that's why they're sort of filtered out. The best of the best runners become clickers. The best of the best clickers become bloaters. Got it. Interesting. Um, I, I don't know that when the bloater came out of the hole and it was sort of this slow motion scene and we cut to Perry and we cut back to the bloater. I was like, you know, it was it was maybe one of the saggier parts of the entire series so far. It was fine. I was OK with it. But the sort of slow mo thing kind of like eh, it was a little cheap, but fine. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll live with it. The thing that sticks in my head mm-hmm. is that the more you resist the fungus, the more resistant you are to it, the stronger you are against it, the more you will grow with the fungus and become a clicker or a bloater. Oh, you're like one with the fungus. Yeah. Give in to the fungus. Your resistance is what grows it almost. Oh, okay. So that's not just not give in to the fungus. It's resist the fungus. Right. This is not the fellowship of the fungus. This is... uh, Right. Mount Fungus. I don't know. Okay, so weird old man callback. I was um, flipping on a TV service the other day called Pluto, which is I, I just heard, learned of, and it's got just volumes of TV. It's interesting. Anyway, there was an old original uh, Star Trek episode on with Kirk and Spock called Operation Annihilate. And it's this thing about where there's these flying pancakes that um, in, infect humans, and then they grow inside them. It's kind of an invasion of body snatchers type things. And Spock is able to defeat, you know, he's able to maintain his psychological control over himself. Um, so it's kind of a, just a funny parallel that, yeah, if you're fighting the fungus, it makes you a stronger uh, fungal agent. All right. Well, now that we've escaped the fungus, let's take a break. And when we get back, we will do the safe room and our listener feedback. And we're back. And Henry and Joel watch their companions read Savage Starlight in a safe apartment. Joel invites Henry to join him in Wyoming, and Henry accepts. Joel opens up his heart again. (laughs) And then guess what happens? Doesn't end well. (laughs) Yeah, every time he opens up, he gets shot down, right? Yeah. He's really annoying. A little with Tess, she's killed. Mm -hmm. He opens up a little bit with Henry and Sam. They both die in the most tragic way. Bill and Frank. Yeah. What's going to happen with Ellie now? 
Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? That's high stakes. Right. I love this nod that Henry gives to Ellie when he goes in to close the door. It's just such a sign of respect and appreciation (laughs) without being overly verbose. Uh, You saved my life. You saved Sam's life. Um, You're awesome. Thank you. It all said in a nod. Just brilliant. And I think even below that is just... Before when he says about Sam's laugh, I haven't heard that in a long time. Mm, Thank you. Right. Yeah, there's a thank you in there as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that Henry just wants Sam to have a normal childhood as much as possible in this world. Mm, Yeah. Rough. Sam asks Ellie if she's ever scared. After deflecting, she tells him that she is scared of ending up alone. Sam asks Ellie, if you turn into a monster, is it still you inside? He then shows her his bite, which is already showing signs of infection. She tells him her blood is medicine, cuts her hand, and presses it to his bite. She promises to stay awake with him. So this, um, regardless of the, you know, well, let's just set the gut-wrenching part of it aside for a half a second. When Sam asks, um, are you, is it still you inside? That has given me uh, a new perspective on Ellie cutting the forehead of the infected in that gas station when they first set out from the Boston QZ. Right. But she's curious as to what's inside here. Um, so I thought that was uh, an interesting parallel or connection or something. Yeah, and I think there's more to Ellie's backstory that we'll probably learn Ooh. that mm. may inform this statement as well, inform this question as well. All right. All right. So you're foreshadowing here. I'll, I'll be mildly interesting. Okay. Um, another interesting insight for me was song choices here. So, you know, we've talked about uh, some of the musical choices in, in previous episodes. And while there may be some tenuous connections or explicit connections, uh, the songs, at least two of them, uh, are doing double duty for me here, triple duty here, in that Never Let Me Down Again and True Faith, two, two songs that we've heard in the last couple of episodes, really come to play in here in this moment. So when she's promising that she's going to stay awake with Sam, um, that goes to never let me down again. That's where you know you're you're with your best friend. You're going for a ride. You feel um, trust and safety because you're with somebody who um, you you trust and and feel safe with. And in that moment, Ellie is giving Sam that reassurance, that trust, and and sense of love and, and security that he's so desperate for right now in this moment. And then in True Faith, you know, we talk about you know young boys and used to play and what I've, what you've become over the course of life. So that was also sort of at play for me here. Again, not explicit meaning and not explicit uh, connection, but for me, it's part of the fabric of this story. So even if something's not in this episode, I'm still getting the vibes and the feels from it, you know, episode or two down the road. Do you think that Ellie believed that, that it would work with the blood? Oh, I don't know what she was thinking. I really don't. I, I, part me. of me hoped. Part of me was like, oh, you know, a lesser show might have done it, right? Or shown some little effect, you know, enough that they could restrain him and they could figure it out. But yeah, I was like, oh my God. And then, you know, what are you supposed to do? You know he's going to turn into a clicker and then that's going to be bad. Well, I think that it also adds to the complexity of this journey across the country, which is, Mm -hmm. this is kind of a Hail Mary. We don't even know if it'll work. We don't know how it would work. We don't know if we have the scientists to figure out how it Mm -hmm. would work. Mm. And this is a hope and a prayer that Ellie's immunity could be translated to a cure. Right, 
by just rubbing a cut hand on the wound. Right. Yeah, I was having personal visions, right? I was like, oh, like, are we going to see this again? Really going to work? I really was kind of hopeful in a moment for a moment. Right. Because they need to give you that hope. Mm, interesting. This was, uh, this was a change from the game, too. He did not tell Ellie he was bitten in the game. He hit it and asked her, I think, if she believed in heaven. And she said no. <laughs> so she lets him down in a different way. Right. And uh, then in the morning, she goes in to get him, and he's infected and attacks her. So the yeah. rest of it plays out pretty much the same, but they did change that. I think I like the change because it gives you a little bit more hope before the fall, mm. and mm. it makes it hit harder. I, I felt a lot more pain watching this than I did playing it. Sure. In the morning, Ellie wakes up and sees Sam sitting on the bed facing the other direction. When she gets his attention, he attacks her with a face that shows infection. Joel tries to shoot Sam, but is stopped by Henry. Henry shoots Sam, points the gun at Joel, says, what did I do? And shoots himself. Um, Bella Ramsey's acting in this, uh, and the screams, Ellie's screams while being attacked, were chilling. (laughs) Absolutely chilling. Like, terrified of losing her life. Like, well, she's immune, right? Well, theoretically, she's immune. But still, she's being, she's terrified of being savagely attacked by, by Sam. And it was just heartbreaking in so many ways. Well, she's not immune from being ripped apart, right? That's what no, that's the point. Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, I think Joel was sleeping with his left ear up in this scene. <laughs> Interestingly. <laughs> he learned a I lesson. Did. Yeah, he did. But I, I, this, this two fathers fighting for the survival of their kids. Okay, yeah, you know, fatherly roles, right? You know, it's brother and, and ward here, whatever. But like... You know, two protectors worried and, and, you know, with Henry holding the gun and you're like, Henry, like, what are you doing? But then, like, you also identify with Henry in the choice that he has to make in this moment. And he's trying to get to it. It's just like, get to it before Bella is ripped apart, you know, or before uh, Ellie is ripped apart. Yeah, it was. Ugh. This was very close to the game, although they changed Henry's dialogue where when he had the gun pointed at Joel in the game, he said, this is your fault and then shoots himself, which for a second makes you think he's going to shoot Joel. So that's mm-hmm. kind of scary. I don't know if you felt in the in the show that he was going to shoot Joel. Maybe no, just only in a in a he was just being defensive and self protective. Yeah, like don't take the gun from me. Right, and then when Joel starts to move towards Ellie to check on her, and then he's still you know Henry's like not letting him do that. You're like wait wait what like okay, I get it. You're going through, you just shot your little brother. That's terrible, but it really wasn't your little brother. It's out of your hands. Right. But then I think the whole roll up, it's not just, um, what did I do in terms of, you know, shooting my little brother? It's the whole thing. It's the whole enchilada. Everything that Henry has done, every choice that Henry has done that has led him to this moment turning over, you know, Kathleen's brother and all of these things, like it's all hitting him in that moment. And his, the acting here of, of all of that emotion going on underneath his face is brilliant again. Well, you go back to what Kathleen was saying in her monologue. Where's the justice in that? What uh, is the point of that? Yeah, yeah. What is the point of that? I think that you could read Henry's what did I do as also what do I do? Because mm. earlier... You had him and Joel talking about how, you know, they joked around like, oh, we're lucky we're doing it right because we're protectors. We have people relying right. on us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was Henry's entire identity. That was why he did everything yeah. he did. That was why he had a man killed, a good man yeah. killed, was to protect his younger brother. 
And now he doesn't have that younger brother anymore. His identity is gone. He is a shattered oh, person. That's really interesting, the Bill-Frank parallel there. Absolutely. Like, you were yeah. my purpose. Right. Oof. Oof. Stinks even more. And the whole scene, like, you see, we can see the punch coming, and then we can see the kick coming, right? And we know that this is going to land. We know that Sam's going to turn and that we know that Sam's going to have to end up. And then, you know, you can kind of guess maybe that like Henry's going to have to be the one that does it. So there's an inevitability about this, the, about what's about to happen. And it hurts even more because we know that we can't stop or avoid it. And that the characters, the act, you know, the, in the story can't avoid it either. It's inevitable. And I think when those two blows land, it, it, it makes it hit even harder. Well, the Sam turning was inevitable and Sam dying was inevitable. I don't know if Henry dying was inevitable. I think that that could have gone either way. He could have, he could have also moved on as a shattered person. And so yeah. the show doubling down on that and saying... No, he's done too. He's, mm -hmm. he's shattered. First of all, it did make sense. Like, it did lead us there with the conversations he's had earlier. Right. But again, like, I don't think that it needed to happen. And therefore, it hurts so much more you, because you, you feel that loss of a full human being who could have added to this mm -hmm. world and, and who could have experienced more things. And finally finding uh, Joel and, and Ellie, people that he could relate to and bond with and help protect each other and form a little collective. Maybe settle in Wyoming. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's tragic. One thing I'll note on Bella Ramsey's acting, when Henry shoots himself, it's focused on Bella Ramsey's face. Yep. She gives this involuntary grunt while her face is red. Yep. This cry of, of just pain. That felt so real. I was just, I was blown away by her acting. Uh, the, I, I absolutely think it was the correct choice to um, have us linger on Ellie uh, yeah. when, when the gun goes off. Um, and, right. and yes, that, and then the, her tears str streaming down her face, like, oh man, yeah. oh man. How do you make a cry look involuntary as an actor? Mm. That is mm -hmm. probably one of the hardest things I would think. What's great too about this production is everybody's given it right everybody's leaving it all on the screen all these actors whether they're you know in for an episode or, or you know or across multiple I, I just like i can imagine like when you're with other people who are performing at that level of excellence like you can't help but also be called to that and to then exceed your own ability in, in your own performances like We've only seen Bella Ramsey, really, in, in uh, Game of Thrones, right? I don't know. I haven't looked at her. The King of the North. Right? And that was a pretty straightforward thing. Yeah. I've seen her in His Dark Materials, too, and she was good in that, but she was okay. kind of a jerk in that. She was, mm. she was a wounded person, too, so okay. I mean, I'm not going to just call her a jerk. But uh, she was good in that, but it was not nearly the depth of character as this. And I don't think that mm. was her fault. That was the writing being a different thing, you know, a young adult novel versus this gritty uh, character-driven drama. Right. You know, too, I was just thinking about, like, what you were saying about Kathleen and fate and choices and Henry. We could almost do, like, a whole episode just, like, unpacking. I feel like we haven't even talked about those choices and consequences in, in fullness, and, and we're already, like, pushing length on this podcast. There's I know. There's just so much density. This is so dense. Uh, it's, it's a it's rich really tapestry. See, now Absolutely. I'm doing it. Woven. Woven. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, what say we close out this episode? Yes, please. Joel buries Henry and Sam. Ellie leaves a note saying, I'm sorry for Sam. She asks which way is west and tells Joel, let's go. Oh, just gutted. Gutted. Yeah. She has put up a wall now, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the one who's walled off. In fact, Joel is lingering on these graves and lingering Mm. on their relationship, whereas Ellie says, well, it happened. Let's go. Mm. Rough. I almost feel like by leaving behind that note, she's leaving behind a part of herself that felt joy. Mm. Thanks for making me even sadder. <laughs> uh, All right. Uh, it's a beautiful day outside. Let's, uh, let's wrap this up so I can, like, <laughs> yeah. we can both get on. Uh, feedback. So if you want to send us feedback, again, here's a reminder. You can send it to TLOU at thelorehounds.com or leave us a voicemail or a contact entry at thelorehounds.com slash contact. So, David, what do you have for me? I know you have a few notes up front. Yeah, so I just have to say, last podcast, we got um, uh, a note in about the word uh, invalid, and I kept pronouncing it invalid during the whole podcast, and I know that that was the point of the word, that like you know it invalidates a person with a disability, but I kept saying invalid instead of invalid when I should have said invalid. So when I listened back to the podcast, I was very embarrassed. So I'm sorry if, <laughs> if my word pronunciation messed with anybody, but it, it made me cringe a little bit. Anyway, it's a personal One demerit anyway, for you. So. Yes, exactly. Uh, but then other than that, yeah, we got a, a handful of feedback here, so let's go through it. We have a new Patreon subscriber, a new lorehound, Abdul from, oh, I cannot pronounce this name in the, in the UK, Al, Al, Al... From the UK. Okay. From the UK, A L T R I N C H A M. Maybe somebody can do this voice, ma'am. Yeah, could be, could be Grovesner. Who knows? Right in. Uh, he says hello. Followed you over from Rings of Power. We get a lot of Rings of Power uh, followovers. That's really great. I'm I'm glad that we're able to appeal beyond just the Tolkien uh, vibe that we started out with. Yeah. Uh, anyway, says loving your work on uh, Last of Us. Well, thank you. Question. As reviewers, how hard is it to watch a show without overanalyzing it at the same time, i.e. not getting hung up on real-world stuff in a fictional show? Fast travel in Games of Thrones, how guns work in The Last of Us, route XX to Wyoming <laughs> is better, etc. <cetera. laughs> um, so he's got a second question, but let's, let's get into that. John, where are you at with um, uh, over-analytical uh, tendencies? I would say that the meat of a show is the characters and their motivations. And if you can sell me on that with good dialogue, Mm. then I am willing to overlook so many logistical plot holes. Mm -hmm. Whereas if the show is not compelling like that, such as maybe a show called Kaleidoscope, I'm going to notice every single issue. I'm going to notice every single detail that you got wrong because Mm -hmm. I'm... I'm not going to be sucked into your world. I'm not going to be able to suspend my disbelief. Whereas in The right. Last of Us, I am so sucked into how these relationships are affecting each other, how these different characters feel in the moment, all the facial expressions, things like that, that I don't even have time. I don't have bandwidth to consider the route to Wyoming. Right. Interesting. Um, I think for me, one thing that's different to, to answer a different part of this question is if I were, I'm remembering back to my time when I was not a podcaster and I was just watching television shows and then being part of a community online around a podcast and 
online dis- uh, conversational spaces where I was getting that extra level analysis, and now I'm doing the analysis, quote unquote, on air, I notice that my attention to detail is very different from before, where I would have watched a show, okay, watched it, move on, that was great, or have some conversation, you know, water cooler, water cooler chat about it, move on. Now I'm getting into the details, and it's been interesting, my evolution on the detail analysis has been is different when I was we were watching Andor. I was doing my notes as I was watching the episode for the first time because I couldn't stop my brain from racing, and there were so many things that I wanted to write down and note and capture. And then I'd watch the episode a second time just for the just to watch it end to end and sort of the enjoyment of it. In this, I'm doing the opposite, where I'm watching it over and then breaking down the the episode after the fact. And I did that with White Lotus as well, right? And so when I'm going over stuff and I'm stopping starting the the playback. I just naturally get sucked into things and I'm like, oh, what is the best route between here? What is Route 70? Where is that? You know, and I just end up Googling it. I would have never done that in the past for just watching a show. Right. So, and then it becomes work, right? Now we're watching shows for work as let alone just pure entertainment value. So that's changed my appearance or appearance, uh, my perspective on things. So right. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's something we're still learning because we're still, we're still doing this. We're just getting into it really. So yeah. Um, second question, A Wizard of Ursea, which, uh, if for those who don't know, we are going to be doing a book podcast on The Wizard of Ursea with our good friend Marilyn Arpukila, who's a Tolkien scholar, and we had a lot on our, our Tolkien-related podcasts and some other stuff even as well. I talked with her about Andor as well, didn't we? And uh, he says, uh, Abdul says, a Wizard of Ursea is a childhood classic for me, me as well. Um, I was unaware of fantasy tropes or the hero's journey and didn't have 30 plus years of other fantasy books to compare it to. How do you stop yourselves from being overcritical when reviewing books like this as adults? John, I think you were just experiencing this. Yeah, I mean, I kind of sent you a message about this exact thing, which is that I, so I'm new to this. I did not read this as a kid, so I did not have that foundation of this. And I'm reading it after reading things like Lord of the Rings and the, the Wheel of Time and uh, a Song of Ice and Fire, things that sort of touch on the same subjects. And, you know, Wheel of Time does a lot of the same things as the first Earthsea book that I think that Wheel of Time executes better, but also would not exist without A Wizard of Earthsea. Like, mm-hmm. Ursula Le Guin laid the foundation of these less Christian, more, I, I guess, Eastern-inspired, these, like, more cyclical, balanced, focused uh, morality systems, magic systems that I think has been taken by other authors and expanded upon and, and built on in a really organic, nice way. Mm-hmm. And so we owe her that. And so I want to take this book, I want to try to put myself in the headspace of somebody who read it in 1968. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'll be able to do that, but I'm going to mm-hmm. do my best. And I'm also going to give a perspective of somebody who has read the things that are inspired by it, but mm. did not read it originally. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think this is going to be a fun podcast too, not to over-promote our next one of our next projects, but I really like the same same way we've done this show, right? We've got one person who's experienced and one person who's not. I read Ursi as a kid. I think it was more impactful to me than Tolkien was. Rereading it now, like I, I found my original copy of it, like the smell, the feel. So like I, I've, I'm getting all those nostalgic um, qualities coming back. And then reading this, I'm just blown away 
at the beauty and the simplicity of the story and the impact that it had on me. And I'm reconnecting it now as a, you know, over 50 year old father to, you know, being my childhood teenage self whenever I first read them. And I don't know, I'm kind of leaning into the over nerdy thing. And I'm super looking forward to talking with Marilyn about a bunch of stuff that like I didn't necessarily realize. And I'm really interested in hearing John's perspective. He's like, oh, well, in this book, they did this. And in that book, they did that. And but now I can see the roots of those things. And like, I don't know, I'm leaning into the over analytical aspect. That's that's where I'm at. Yeah, I think especially with a book like this, where it's short, it's like you said, simple prose. It is important to get analytical so that we can actually have something to talk about because mm. it is every line is, I think, more impactful than, you know, Wheel of Time. I love Wheel of Time, but boy, does he take a long time to say something mm. at 14 books long. Right. And uh, I think over a million words. So, yeah, I mean, this is much more pithy than that. And I think that so we need to dig deeper to be able to get to what Le Guin was trying to go for. But, yeah, I'm really excited for that conversation, too. Uh, Wizard of Earthsea looks like it's Google says it's 56,000 words. So that's tight. That's yeah, tight for sure. All right. Thanks, Abdul. Thanks for signing up for uh, being a new patron. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we hope that you uh, have a good time hanging out with us. Um, next up is Charles. Charles says he, he just wanted to address the show using Kansas City. The showrunners mentioned after the episode. So this must have been on the after the scene thing that they were shooting in Canada and where they were shooting in Canada resembles Kansas City more than Pittsburgh, which is why they deviated from the game. Um, he also says, love the podcast, started with Rings of Power and or and the Bad Batch coverage. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for um, sticking with us from, from Rings of Power. That's, it's always good to hear that. Longtime lorehound. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it sounds like a reasonable choice, John, from um, Pittsburgh to Kansas City. Yeah, I don't know any reason to stick with Pittsburgh. If you feel like it looks more like Kansas City, by all means. Well, and like you said, right, the the character drama, the actors, the everything else is delivering, firing on all cylinders. So who cares what the city skyline necessarily looks out looks like? Uh, let alone like why did they take seventy six to seventy and didn't go this other route or whatever? Okay, it's fine. Right. Right. That was just fun nerdy stuff. Uh, Lore master David W writes in. He says, "Hey guys, currently listening to The Last of Us." Um, they picked up the, so he's referring to the movies that were on in the beginning of the Kansas City episode. And he says that they came out in 2003. Absolutely. Those are both uh, historically accurate movies for the time period. And kudos for them finding the right movies, right? Because they knew internet sleuths are going to go looking for those movies and try to draw right. connections and make theories out of them. Who knows why they chose them? Yeah, I was more curious about why they chose those two particular movies, because I'm sure there's many movies that came out in 2003, but like, why yeah. those two? I don't know yeah. if there were, was a thematic reason, but yeah, no, that, I'm glad that they kept it accurate. So thanks for writing in, David. Uh, who knows what, you know, there's probably no cheese down that, that tunnel anyway. So, you know, right. just, for, just for fun, you know, we got, we're, we're, well, like Abdul points out, we're getting like over analytical sometimes. Well, we have not enough to talk about on this show. We're going on two <laughs> hours, so. Yeah, exactly. Two hours on the raw uh, recording, so. Um, lastly, we have Rex and Rex says, okay, David, I have to know the name of this underage goth club you worked at. The one I frequented in the late eighties in Jacksonville beach was called Einstein a go-go and was actually where my wife and I met way back in 1988. Oh, and thank God, at least one of you guys knows these songs. Nice one, <laughs> Rex. Congratulations on, uh, a finding your person and hanging with them for that long. That's awesome to hear. 
I'll be the ignorant millennial. Don't worry. <laughs> we love you for it. Uh, well, you know, it's our balance, right? That's our that's our um, our uh, merry-go-round. Sure, you, you bring seesaw, the century of experience, and I'll bring the lore. <laughs> hey, you can you can give me a hard enough time for not watching uh, Harry Potter films as as, as you want, right? Uh, we uh, we talked about Osmosis Jones on Second Breakfast, and I feel like that was a very fun conversation. So if you want to hear that, join the Patreon. Exactly. Anyway, the club that I was referring to is called Confetti's. Uh, and uh, I don't know, maybe uh, if you do some searching, I, I won't divulge the city. It was on the West Coast, I'll say that. And it had a prior name before. And yeah, underage, non-alcoholic dance clubs were definitely a thing in the late 80s uh, into the early 90s. I don't know if they still are anymore. No, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, cool. Maybe, uh, maybe we can bully you into releasing a picture one day. Well, I think, why did you... Throw down the gauntlet at 100 patron uh, Yeah, if we get to 100 patrons, we should release the photo. What do you say? All right, sounds good. I will see if I can dig it out. I don't think it's that exciting of a photo. It's like, just, it's, yeah, I, I want to manage expectations a little bit there. I'm happy to release it if I can find it. I, I have a picture of it in my mind. Um, but it's not that exciting, I don't think. Well, I'm excited for it anyway. All right, fair enough. Yeah, so I think it's time to do our Patreon shoutouts. Special thanks to our Loremaster patrons. We have three tiers, starting at $3 a month for ad-free and early access, and our Loremasters are our highest tier for 10 bucks a month. I am always flattered to see a new Loremaster, and uh, so thank you so much. Here's our list. Samarshan, Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G., David W., Michelle E., Brian P., new Loremaster, Nick W., and not a minute before I started reading this, I got an email that we have a new Loremaster... What? SC. Just now? Yeah, literally just now. I'm not even kidding. Oh my gosh. This is not just show business. This was minutes ago while we were doing feedback. Okay. What a time. So SC is our newest patron. Nick W., you were our newest patron until minutes ago. Thank you both. And thank you all for your support. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you all so much. Um, not to be overly effusive, just um, there are material costs involved in making uh, podcasts. And uh, every dollar uh, that, that subscribers send our way helps us to not only justify this to our, our spouses, but actually helps us uh, carry the actual cost of producing a podcast. So thank you. Speaking of, we have gone independent since our last podcast. And because of that, we're actually going to be able to deliver episodes a little bit early for you guys. So probably a day or two earlier, we're going to be having our Last of Us podcast out so right now, this one is way early because the episode was early, but generally Monday or Tuesday, you're going to get that new Last of Us pod every week now instead of Wednesday. So we're excited to do that. We're, we're grateful to our fans. We try to get you things as fast as we can. If you want it even earlier, patreon.com slash the lorehounds. We also just put out our second breakfast podcast, the fourth episode. It's a Patreon exclusive. It is out now on Patreon, and you can get that right now by going to patreon.com slash the lorehounds. Silmarillion Stories is out February 27th, we're going to be covering of Aule and Yavanna, the story of the dwarves and the Ents. Very exciting stuff. As David mentioned, we have a new project called The Book Nook. We're covering A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin with fan favorite Marilyn R. Pukila. Also, since we're on a lore, uh, Last of Us podcast, I wanted to announce our new gaming project. We're going to be bringing on uh, a co-host with me to talk about video games since David doesn't do a lot of video games. Uh, his name's Brandon. He's a very good guy. And we're going to be covering The Last of Us Part 1, the first game, 
uh, sometime in March. We'll probably follow our show coverage with it. So we will be talking more Last of Us after this, so make sure you stay posted for that. Also, for our podcasting peers, we have Maester Anthony, who's been on this podcast before. Uh, He's continuing his Clash of Kings read-along with Chapter 10, uh, Davos 1, this week. We are going to be on his Bookaloo podcast on February 23rd with uh, the first Theon chapter. Also, check out his podcast, Cocoons of Horror, where he and his co-host watch classic horror movies and have fun with it. Well, I think that's all for us, but please feel free to send feedback to TLOU at thelorehounds.com or by filling out the contact form or leaving a voicemail at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.